Good ideas are like red wine. They need time in the cellar for refinement. Here's where I keep mine. Welcome to 55 Degrees. I want to talk today about my book and the role that writing has played for me in my new life as a widower. I published a memoir cookbook in late January of this year, but with the COVID shutdown, it put the book on the shelf, so to speak, and I was never able to step into a time of promoting it as I had hoped. But now as things are slowly moving away from quarantine, I'm returning my attention to speaking about the book and that will hopefully be the first of many that I write. If you have my book already, these stories will give you some backstory to fill in the blanks that the book may have left. And if you don't have a copy and would like to get one, you can get it at Francie and Finch Bookshop at 130 South 13th in Lincoln, Nebraska. And if you don't live in Lincoln, you can order it on my website, 55degrees.us slash shop, and I can ship it anywhere in the U.S. I am so happy with how the book turned out. People ask me if it was a dream come true, and I say, no, I didn't really dream of writing a book, but I am incredibly proud of how it turned out and how it looks. And it wouldn't have happened without the work of two very important people. All the photos by Chris Ricewig are beautiful. The wild mulberry panna cotta is my favorite photo. Someone asked me who did the food styling for the book, and I said, no one. That's how the plate looked when it went to the table, and Chris captured it all in the moment. The collaboration with Chris and me began soon after the restaurant opened. She was in one day for lunch with some friends and uh, I asked her how, how she liked everything. And she said, Oh, I love everything about your restaurant. But one thing I said, Oh, well, what's that? She, she said, I don't like your website. I said, Oh really? Why, why is that? And she said, there are no photos to that. I said, well, Chris, I, I'm a writer. I'm not a photographer. And she replied, well, I'm a photographer, not a writer. She went on to tell me that she was learning how to do photography and really wanted to step into the realm of taking food pictures. And she offered to come in and take pictures of my food if I was willing and that she would give me the pictures in exchange for the opportunity. By the end of 10 years, we had thousands of pictures to call through to get down to the 168 that made it in the book. It was a very, very fun process. It was great to go back through year by year, season by season, seeing the food mature and seeing our, our skill and our passion grow. And Chris was right there to chronicle it all through her pictures. The other important person in getting the book to reality was my editor, Cindy Conger. She's known as the champion of authors, and that is an apt 
title for her. But she began to ask me, you know, you, you should you should think about writing a book. And it wasn't just her, though. Other people were nudging me to do the same. But I just kept saying no. I wasn't interested. And then I was having beers with my good friend, The Future, one night. And he's an author and an editor of a national publication. I trust his judgment. I highly respect his work. And I asked him, how do you know what to write? How do you know what project to take on? And he gave me three questions that were very, very helpful and insightful. First, he said, is, I have to ask myself, is it a story that needs to be told? Will people be inspired by it? Will people be moved by it? Is it, is it a story that needs to be told? And, and that's the very first question to consider. And if that is yes, then I have to ask myself, am I the person to tell this story? And if I'm the person to tell it, though, do I have the commitment to see it through to the end? Do I have what it takes to tell this story adequately as it needs to be told? And I could not get past the first question. Is it a story that needs to be told? Because I just kept saying, saying, why would anyone want to read a book about a restaurant that failed? And so I just said no. But Cindy wouldn't let it go. And about six months later, around January of 2019, she asked me again to reconsider well, the circumstances were different now for me because Karen had just been diagnosed with the third recurrence of cancer. And the restaurant was a huge part of both of our lives. And I asked the future's question again. Is it a story that needs to be told? And I discovered, I think I've been thinking of the wrong story. My story isn't about a restaurant that closed. It's about the hope that surrounded it, the hope that brought it to life and that sustained it and that sustained me after its closing. And with the gravity of Karen's condition, I needed something bigger to focus on. And so after I said yes to the first question, I knew immediately I was the only one who could tell the story. And yes, if I could build a restaurant, I think I have what it takes to write a book. And in the midst of the pandemic, I'm hoping it will be a story of encouragement to other colleagues who have felt the devastating blow of having to shutter their restaurant or other small business. Because I know what it means to have a dream turn into a nightmare to turn into a brand new dream again. So where did the restaurant start? How, how did, how did I begin? And I'll take you back to December 31st, 1994. And that's the first documented thought in my journal. And I was sitting at the LA airport waiting to catch a flight to be with my family and in-laws for Christmas and I was sitting in the airport terminal 
journaling. And the question I wrote that day started with a, with this question. Why are my best conversations with people in bars? What is it about a bar for me that just seems to be a great place for people to open up? And people just don't pop into a church building for socialization unless there's something planned there. People don't just stop in and see who's who's, who's in the building. Not like they do at Jake's. Jake's is one of my favorite places, a cigar and, and cocktail lounge in Lincoln on the crossroads of a major pedestrian student walkway. And you go in there weekend night and the crowd will change about every 20 minutes because people are just coming and going and they're looking to see, do I have friends here? They'll stop, connect, who knows, maybe their plans will change for the, for the whole evening. But it's, it's an epicenter of, of activity and where people come in and out and connect. And this question got me thinking, why are my best conversations with people in bars? I think, what, what would I do if I wasn't a pastor of college-age students and led music at a church? Could I own a bar? But I never took it seriously. I did daydream it about it a lot. But time went along, seven years later, and discouragement was creeping in, and 9-11 hits. And there was so much despair, and I realized I had very little answers for myself, let alone for anyone else. And the warrior and I were in Colorado soon after that on a retreat. We took a few days to daydream about the church of the future, what we were imagining, because we were feeling a very similar thought, feeling, disgruntled, uh, disappointment, thinking that couldn't church be more? And what are we missing? And that was the point of our retreat. Just to brainstorm and let our imagination run wild. And we met Francesca. She was a bartender in Breckenridge, Colorado. And as she came up to ask our order behind the bar, she asked what we were doing. And we, we told her we're, we're actually trying to think about what the church of the future could look like. And then she opened up about her thoughts about God and where she was. And, and I thought, here it is again. The best conversations happen in bars for me. Why is that? But the next day we were disrupted by a very tragic accident that happened in Fort Morgan about two hours away. We had some dear friends that lost their son and daughter in a car accident off the interstate. And when the warrior and I got the news, we just packed up our stuff and left. And we never returned to that condo and never returned to those ideas. 
I was so discouraged in that season. And I knew I needed some inspiration. I needed something. My faith was languishing, but still I had no permission, sense of permission or calling to do something new. I knew enough to not just run from my current situation without having something to go toward. So three years later, 2004, I had a vision and I will, I'll dive into this topic in future episodes when I discuss dreams and visions because they're very important to me and I think they're very misunderstood. But a dream, as I describe it, is a visual mental picture that comes to my mind when I'm asleep, often very um, outrageous, but they can be trusted if I know what I'm looking for. A vision is a similar picture, mental picture, but it it comes to my mind when I'm awake. And God speaks to me intuitively in these two forms because I store truth in these pictures. This is how I remember things. I remember them via these dreams and visions. I don't remember them in facts, figures, files, and spreadsheets. Pictures are easy for me to remember and refer back to them. And in 2004, I had this particular vision. I was in the office of the building where my church met. And out the back south window, I saw someone out there in the lawn waving at me, waving me come out. So I left everything there in the office and I walked out, walked through the, down the lawn out to this person. I see it's Jesus. He's got a big smile on his face and he's holding a big ring of keys. And he asked me how I was doing. And I said, well, yeah, I'm not doing that good. And he just seemed to ignore that. And I asked him what was in his hand. He said, oh, these are the keys to hearts. And I want to give them to you so you can use them to set people free. And he hands me the ring of keys. And he looks at me, again, that big smile. And said, now don't go back in that building. And he pointed west toward the horizon, an empty horizon. And that was the permission that I was looking for. I realized now I can move on. Now I can pursue this idea, this dream of opening a place of conversation and connection that really mattered to people. But I still had to move out in faith. But faith as I've learned really is a fairly simple thing to understand in concept. Scripture says that faith encompasses two very basic things to walk by faith, to live by faith, to make choices by faith. I just simply need to believe that God exists, that he's real. He's there. And secondly, that he rewards those who seek him. It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult to understand 
But that does not make, that does not mean that stepping out in faith is easy. It's just easy to understand the process because things got harder after we made the decision to step out in faith and build our restaurant. At one point in the summer of 2005, we were both unemployed. And then in August of that summer, my dad died and I was doing much soul searching. Did I make a mistake? Did, did I do the right thing? Why are all these things seeming to just crumble when I'm trying to chase down this dream? But whenever I'm making a step of faith, I've learned that I must expect adversity to challenge it. I can also expect things to be confirmed, fall into place. But at the same time, I can expect a challenge because there will always, always be obstacles when I choose to make a step of faith. If, if it wasn't, there would, it wouldn't be faith because faith is about chasing the unseen. If it's visible, it isn't faith. And it took two years to open our doors. And that's when the real problem started. Because there's a risk in working with a spouse or a family member. And, the, and, and I, would not, I would never say don't do it. But my experience and advice would be just make sure you understand the risk. Because whatever happens at home, the crap that you deal with at home will just get carried to work. And then the crap that happens at work is just going to get carried home. And before long, there's no safe place. Work isn't safe. Home isn't safe because it's filled with the conflict that crosses over. And after we opened our doors, my body began to try to tell me something. That's when I developed heart palpitations and these, this condition called preventricular contractions where my heart was beating irregularly. I developed high blood pressure and started taking medication for it. I was experiencing excessive fatigue. I was falling asleep. I fell asleep at the wheel at a stoplight one afternoon, driving home to take a nap to get ready for the evening. And I heard the horn of a car behind me wake me up and I looked and saw the light was green and realized I had fallen asleep. I couldn't even stay awake on the drive home. I was under, under that much fatigue. I also started gaining weight. I was no longer exercising because I'm too tired all the time being on my feet and I wasn't sleeping well and my body was deteriorating pretty rapidly. And again, I had to ask myself, did I make a mistake? Did I hear wrong? Was this vision wrong? And I remember one night, 3 a.m., sitting in my living room with my feet up on the footstool, knowing that I had to be at work in a couple of hours. I could actually feel, I could count my pulse in my feet because my feet were throbbing 
so much and I was that exhausted. So did I make a mistake? No, no. I was still making my choices. But factored in there were my responses to the fear and the stress that I was under. Because I've, I've come to see now, I cannot blame it on anything external without first acknowledging my choices. I wasn't a victim of the restaurant business. I was just a victim of my own fears and the choices that I was making to deal with them. The next episode, I'll share about the strange reprieve that came in the form of cancer and what that season was like for both of us, for her as a victim and survivor, and for me as a caregiver. I look forward to telling that story. See you next time, and thanks for listening.